Hurley, April 1890. Situated on the border of the Upper Peninsula, Hurley, Wisconsin had for years been growing a reputation. Known as a haven for iron miners, loggers, and railway men, Hurley had several times put itself in the national spotlight for all the wrong reasons. Gambling, liquor, brothels, and rampant ladies of the night led to various government investigations, but resulted in no changes. But before organized crime and FBI public enemies moved in, a gruesome murder led some to speculate whether Hurley had already been infiltrated by the most infamous criminal in the world, Jack the Ripper. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 10. We've made it to 10 of Badger Bazaar. This am... episodes. That's French. Episode ADs. That took seven years of French, and you probably said it more right than I did. That's it. I don't think episode. I don't think it's episode A. I I just... <laughs> you probably said it more accurately than I said, That's the Spanish version, episode A. Welcome to episode 10. We'll just leave it at that. X. Of Badger Bazaar. Along with your co-host, Mickey Sanders, I am your other co-host, Scott Whitman. Thanks for coming along on the ride. It's been a while since we've uh, we've actually recorded together. A couple of our previous episodes, there was some uh, pre-recorded material in it, so we had it queued up. But this is actually the first time in a few weeks that Mickey and I have been probably at the a, table probably a month. recording um, and getting fresh material out for you guys. So I hope everyone is having... A great summer. We it is busy, right? Busy summer for mm-hmm. everybody. I know Mickey's been on a nationwide road oh, trip yeah. or holiday road. There you go with the Griswolds. Griswolds. They get along better than my family does, though. So lots of summer stuff going on. Lots of family stuff. Obviously, I've been on tour with my book, Finding Dairyland. Um, uh, speaking of which, I'll be at the Rusk County Fair this coming weekend. August 13th, doing a presentation at the fairgrounds in Ladysmith. So 1 o'clock on Saturday, 
Russ County Fairgrounds in Ladysmith. Come see me. It's always fun to talk about finding Dairyland. It's fun to talk about Badder Bazaar. Do you want to talk about your road trip at all? Or uh, I saw some really cool things that aren't necessarily relevant to this show, but you know, we, I, I got to see Mount Rainier finally. I got to see Crater Lake. Saw some of the cheesy things that Griswold see, like the biggest buffalo, and like actually in the movie. No, no, we didn't see the world's <laughs> largest house of mud or any or the yard second world's largest ball of twine. I've been watching that a lot lately. I mean, we saw the world's largest buffalo, which is just made out of plaster or something, and it was like connected to one of those old time towns or whatever. Yeah, and because we're always running late with my sister's family, we got to it after it was all closed. But it was still cool to walk through it and see it. And, and was was John Candy there telling that you can't get in? No. <laughs> sorry, sorry, folks. The, the park is closed. You should have seen it on the side up front. No, we didn't get any sporting goods or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, we got to see some beautiful landscape, and uh, there's a lot of driving without seeing anything out west. But it's there's amazing territory out there, and it's I recommend. Like South Dakota's got so much stuff, as you know very well. And there's just Washington and Crater Lake. It's just amazing. It's it's the bluest you'll ever see a lake be, and it's just the the scenery from every angle is amazing. And things I might never see again. So I'm glad I got to. You know, love South Dakota. We go out to. We haven't since COVID, um, and this year it really has nothing to do with COVID. Why we haven't? But we usually go out to the Black Hills every year. It's just it's one of it's my favorite place in the world. Is is uh, that part of the country, South Dakota, eastern Montana, Wyoming. Your favorite city, and what's the what city you guys always stay in? Deadwood. Yeah, that's Deadwood. Yeah. You know, it's not everybody's cup of tea, um, but it is mine. Yeah. Well, Vicky loves it too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 good time. But so yeah, it's it's good to be back at the table here. It's uh, the last episode we did was obviously the three parter on Peshtigo on the Peshtigo fire, mm-hmm. and the last episode was uh, kind of the paranormal angle on that. And we brought in uh, uh, Craig Nairing to talk about the demise of Summerwind 2. And again, a- a- according to the numbers that we see, popular episode. Anytime we bring up kind of the paranormal like that, um, again, because it's such an unknown and people are so intrigued by that, it seems to be a niche that people are looking for. Today is much more of a true crime-ish underworld kind of flair to it. Um, which is a really popular niche, too. Which is a really popular niche, so... Um, we got some good stuff coming for you. Speaking of true crime, I've noticed a couple of stories going on that I wanted to mention here that kind of we're looking into. First, there was this this crazy, they're very scary, I think. You know, when we're talking about summer, a lot of people are out and about on the water, tubing, rafting. And there was this incident on the Apple River up over on the kind of the northwestern part of the state, northeast of the, of the Twin Cities, where this guy just kind of went on a knifing rampage and started knifing tubers and he killed actually a teenager and i have an article here just to read the the first part of it a minnesota man accused of going on a deadly stabbing rampage at a popular tubing destination on a wisconsin river is now held on one million dollars bail despite telling investigators he acted in self-defense when a group of young people accused him of being a child molester and attacked him first in the water. That is his <laughs> recollection of what happened. Of what happened. His name is Nicolay Mew, M-I-U. He's 52 years old of Prior Lake, Minnesota. From Minnesota. I mean, you knew he was from Minnesota, <laughs> right? Is accused of fatally stabbing a 17-year-old rising high school senior and seriously wounding four others, men and a woman in their 20s, Saturday afternoon while tubing on an area of the Apple River in Wisconsin so badly that one of the victim's intestines was hanging from their body My God. and a slash wound was exposing internal organs. 
according to an affidavit. But he killed the youngest of the group. He it killed a seventeen-year-old honor student from Minnesota. Well, and the thing is, you, I mean, if you've ever been on one of these, they're they're fun. You're sitting there with your friends and. You're having a few, you know, road sodas or whatever. I mean, so you're relaxed. You don't expect that to happen no. when your life is taken. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, those of us in Wisconsin, obviously the rivers in Wisconsin, the huge tubing. Oh, Wolf Rivers. Sites. I've the done Wolf, that we've, lots we've, of right, times. We've yeah. done that. I've done that. Scouts at, uh, even, you know. Something so so common as tubing down a river. You know, I've never heard of this happening. Yeah, it happened a couple weeks ago. situation. Yeah. Jeez. You know, and uh, of course his, his recollection is that they were... Uh, attacking him and calling him names, even if they were doing that, which calling probably wasn't names. happening. Right. He pulls out a knife, which is weird to have anyways. Next to a river with a bunch of tubers. You yeah. know, and you go on a rampage and slash them so badly that their intestines are hanging out. And that woman, that was a woman, and she survived, thank God. I've been called names my whole life. I've never stabbed anybody because of it. But just kind of a crazy story there that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of keeping an eye on. Another one here, which kind of goes along the same lines of in the water. If you're in the water this summer... Be careful. Pack some heat, maybe. Keep an eye out. Because right here we have skeletal remains discovered in Wood County. So skeleton remains found over three days of searching are believed to have been in the water for more than one year. And they are believed to be from the same person. So in Wood County, Wisconsin... This is right outside of Wisconsin Rapids. This actually occurred in Port Edwards, again, which is on the Wisconsin River. Three days of searching an area of the Wisconsin River near the village of Port Edwards began just about noon on Tuesday when a maintenance crew working on a dam near the village first made the discovery. A second day of searching on Wednesday, July 20th turned up even more remains, prompting a third day of search and recovery efforts. So they found a skeleton. Underneath a dam in the Wisconsin River, not in just Port bones, Edwards. like most of the skeleton. Like most of the skeleton, yeah. And this this person, they don't know if it's male or female. They haven't. So this was a couple of weeks ago, actually, and they haven't, to my knowledge, have not identified this person yet. They haven't given any more information about it. But it's been there uh, for more than a year. And I did hear an, inv- uh, an interview with one of the policemen or one of the investigators, and they said that it's, it's been much longer than a year. So this could be decades old for all we know, yeah. which kind of leads me to believe, you know, it reminds me of there's a big story nationally going on right now in Nevada on Lake Mead because the, the water is receding so far. Right near Vegas, baby. In, right in Vegas, that all these bodies are being found <laughs> <laughs> in Lake Mead. Huh. And what's the know, first thing you think exactly. of when you hear that? There's a reason that those bodies are there and they've been there. At least they know one has been there for decades. It has a bullet in its head <laughs> and it was found in a barrel. So and you're in Vegas. So it's huh. you know, it's kind of easy to surmise why those bodies are in Lake Mead, and it kind of the rodeo was in town. That's, that that's why exactly he was in the barrel? it. Oh, yes, okay. uh, nothing you know. gets by me, baby. So we have a little bit of mobster uh, flair in what we're talking about today when we talk about the North Woods of Wisconsin, kind of North Woods vice, I think we can call this. Um, but what's going on in Lake Mead uh, when they're finding bodies now that the, the the lake is receding so low? I want to see how many had concrete shoes on them. Concrete I shoes, I want to see right? concrete shoes for once in my life. So it's That's kind of interesting eerie, stuff and true crime going on in Wisconsin. So if you're on the water at all for the rest of the summer, what do we got? A month left of summer. Take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> Watch what you're doing. But if you're staying in, that's always fun too. And uh, a couple times we've mentioned on the podcast a book 
that uh, we've talked about is Devil in the White City. And we just found on uh, Hulu is making a six, I believe it's a six-part series. series of that. Martin Scorsese's name might be attached to it, I read. Scorsese and Leo DiCaprio. They, yeah. Those two kind of seem to do everything together. Yeah, that's weird. So, and Keanu Reeves might be making an appearance in the movie, in the show, too. Love the book. Um, <clears throat> highly recommend the book. So I'm super interested in watching this movie. Keanu Reeves is not playing H.H. H. Holmes, no. however. He's playing uh, actually one of the planners of the world, of, of the uh, Chicago World's Fair, one of the main characters in the book. Um, and not H.H. H. Holmes, which, you know, we've talked about that a few times. There, there's a couple Wisconsin connections with with H.H. H. Holmes. You know, he did kind of confess to killing Henry Rogers, who was the builder of the Hearthstone in Appleton, which we know is not true. Henry Rogers actually outlived H.H. H. Holmes. Um, and, you know, there, there's actually a kind of a connection almost in, a, you know, we're actually going to bring up H.H. H. Holmes and what we, what we talk about today in regards to the North Woods, because Jack the Ripper and the H.H. H. Holmes connection comes right. up again. So it's just a kind of an interesting thing there. If you're on the water, take care. If you're yeah. inside, check out the Devil in the White City series. Or listen to our podcast. Or That's listen to the podcast. It's funny about H.H. H. Holmes. Like Until like 10 years ago, I'd never heard that name, to be honest. Not not very much. And now you're hearing more about this story because it's just like the, one of the most horrific stories in United States history. And this show is going to bring it to the forefront, I think, a lot. So it's an interesting story. It'd be fun to read the book, too, if you haven't read it before right. that series And there's starts. a few good and, books about it. Great book. One other thing I wanted to mention quick before we head out, um, more of a, on a somber note, the, the paranormal community experienced a loss recently. And, you know, I know if you're in the paranormal world, if you're into the kind of the, the pop culture paranormal world, locally here, actually, you've probably heard the name of Jan Goldberg, who lost her battle with cancer uh, recently. It's, it, it, we haven't recorded since it happened, so I just wanted to mention it today. Jan was uh, v- <laughs> a very funny person. She was a, a paranormal investigator, uh, well-known. She was part of uh, Paranormal Investigators of Milwaukee, uh, PIM, better known as. She was a kind of a, a very well-known around the Paracon circuit. She was a very boisterous personality. She was very good friends with uh, Tim Dennis and Dave Schrader, names that we've mentioned before on here, Jeff Belanger, Aaron Sagers. So if you're into that kind of realm, you've you've likely, if you follow those people, you've seen the tributes to Jan Goldberg. Um, Jan is actually from Appleton. Um, we went to the same high school as Mickey and I. She was a couple years older than no us. No kidding. Yep. And, 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 you know, I've known her probably since I was, I don't know, 12, 13. We knew her back then as Jan Obermeyer. Oh, um, okay. So she she was a very boisterous, <laughs> jovial personality. She was the funniest person in the room. I have been in the room with her. I think the last time I saw her was at Shaker's Bar, which is in Milwaukee, which is years ago. I have been in the room with her, with comedians, where she has been the funniest person really? in the room. No question about it. Huh. Just that very kind of jovial, um, boisterous personality. You always knew she was around, but she was the nicest person you'd ever meet too. So she she was actually, um, when we talked about books a couple of, was it two, maybe the last two episodes, I think we might've talked about books. One book that I mentioned was Monster Hunters and the author that we talked about was T. Krulos. And, and yeah. she, where he embeds, the book that he wrote is Monster Hunters and he actually embeds himself with investigators, paranormal investigators. And one of them was P.I.M., Paranormal Investigators of Milwaukee, and Jan shows up in the book on like page two, just because you know she was such an 
so that that kind of personality where you just can't keep her buried, you know, on right. page like 80, you know, she had to come right. out right away. And she, you know, actually told me about that when that first happened with that an author was coming to follow them. And that was how I was first heard of T. Krulos and first introduced to that book. And she actually, when, when you and I had kind of birthed this podcast, Mickey, when we had talked about maybe the paranormal, um, she was a name that I had, you know, wanted to, to, to maybe partner with to bring up and to have guests on and you know just by her connections and her her expertise in this area so i just wanted to mention that if you've if you've followed the paranormal pop culture world you've seen the tributes to her come out online facebook twitter what have you and i just wanted to mention that quite a big loss obviously that has not gone unnoticed in in her hometown um the world is uh, a much less funnier place today that's for sure So Wisconsin's North Woods, we've all been there, obviously. We love going up there. Going up north, that phrase is part of our language in Wisconsin, right? right? It's become part of our culture. Everybody we, knows what you mean when you say right. it. You say going up north, they ask you where. Yeah, which you know, city? Wh- right. What are, you, what are you doing? They know you're going up to a cabin somewhere. You're going out to a lake. Uh, you actually have a cottage up in the North Woods. Just my, there this, this weekend. Right. Yeah. My family doesn't have a cottage up there, but my, my extended family does, and we've been up there quite a bit, and you know we rent cabins a lot. I'll be up there, like I said, this weekend in Russ County. So obviously, when we talk about the North Woods to us in Wisconsin, we have a certain mystique about that. We kind of have a certain outlook of what the what the North Woods means to us. It means rest and relaxa- relaxation, hanging out by the lake, not getting stabbed if you're um, right. skiing or tubing. Well, it wasn't always that way, though, I guess. up there. Because when you look nationally, kind of at the at the um, the reputation of the North Woods, if you read articles about incidents that happen in the North Woods that have national appeal, and there's quite a bit of them. What? Which, which we're going to talk about. In Wisconsin? Today. Um, it, they had a different kind of perspective about it. You know, some of it, kind of it is is a little backwoodsy you know those rural people up there in wisconsin but most of it is kind of badassery like those people up in those north woods they kind of go by their own drummer they kind of make their own rules and they don't really care what your laws are well there's not a lot of people there watching stopping them from doing it so when you you, when you take a look at how did that start how did you know quote going up north start you have to go back to the waning days of the logging era and there was a large push for for conservation a lot of that land was cut over and obviously the people the logging companies the mining companies the railroad companies they had to get rid of that land and we had talked about this in, in previous podcasts when they got rid of that land they gave it to people to farm knowing that it couldn't be farmed and people literally went crazy you know i mean we had a whole podcast of it episode number three called wisconsin death trip about what happened to those people but after that happened when farming went belly up there was a big push by the state for reforestation and conservation and tourism so when we look at the the you know the 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 time era of the 1920s and 1930s there was a big push by the state for tourism because they needed an industry to get there Logging was done, mining was done, the railroads were built, they needed people up there. So the next thing, farming went belly up. So the next thing on their docket was tourism and recreation to get people up there that way. But before then, you know, 1890s, the World War One era, people were still going up there, but it was pretty much only wealthy and well-connected people. You know, sportsmen from Milwaukee 
Chicago and Detroit. Lots of men. Lots right. of men, right. I mean, the target audience there was wealthy people from New York, Chicago, Detroit would build lodges up there to attract wealthy people from Chicago, Milwaukee, New York, New York Detroit for sportsman-related things, hunting, fishing. And, of course, they would build these grand lodges there. You know, we talk about Summerwind, the Lamont Mansion, right, right who was a businessman from Chicago who came up there and, and bought a lodge that was built in 1914 as a fishing lodge, right? Well, who was that built for? That wasn't built for, you know, your neighbor Joe in Sheboygan bringing no. the family of five in the station wagon, right? That came much later. This was, you know, sportsmen that were wealthy and well-connected. From well out of state. Right. When you, when you have a target audience of lots of men in an area where you have lots of loggers and miners, railroad workers, you have lots of alcohol. And there's not a whole lot of other entertainment. You have lots of alcohol and you have lots of women, right? Speaking of entertainment. You know, these men aren't bringing their wives along at that time. So, and really no other town in the Northwoods is more famous, really, or infamous, if you want to say. Probably the right way to say it. For that than Hurley, Wisconsin, known as the Tijuana of the North. Imagine having that nickname, right? Right, The Tijuana of the north, way up in Iron County on the UP border. And everyone's heard of Silver Street. I mean, that, that has a perfect name for it. it Hurley has a, is a place near and dear to my heart. You know, I've been there many, many times, probably 10, I don't know, 15 years in a row maybe. Um, we would go With up the there. With family? No. Oh, no kidding. We would go up there, a group of friends, uh, skiing, obviously, because Big Powderhorn Mountain is in the area. Indian Head is in the area. And, uh, you know, obviously Silver Street and Hurley. Is in the area. So I spent a lot of time in Hurley in recent years, obviously. We're not talking about the 1920s. You're not quite that here, old. Right. <laughs> I just missed the cutoff for that. You know, Hurley's Hurley's a, a, a place that uh, I've been to many times and, and know well. But so early on, you know, the North Woods in general, and specifically Hurley, because of what we just talked about, the large amount of men up there, uh, a large amount of alcohol up there. It got a reputation for rampant prostitution. And and those women had to come from somewhere. And once self-sufficient families, because of the mining industry and the, and the lumber industry, were relying on themselves, now they relied on multiple incomes. And that would force the young unmarried women to leave because it was hard times and they needed to go start supporting themselves. And, and then they would enter the workforce. And with not a lot of other opportunities, a lot of them would be forced into the world of the sex worker. So Hur- Hurley, well, actually it was the Northwoods in general, not necessarily Hurley specifically, although right. Hurley was a big part of it. Right, it was like maybe a um, nucleus, but there was a lot of going on. It became the focus of the first anti-trafficking campaign in U.S. history. In the United States. Think about That's that. It's amazing. You know, not something I would have guessed. No. Right, that the first With all the weird <laughs> stuff that happens in this screwed up state. Sex trafficking was not something I was fully aware of in the 1880s. Right, right. I mean, yeah, just, 140 just, years ago. Yeah, just add it to the just add it to the resume. Right, right. So but, much bizarre. You know, in in the mid 1880s, there were so many rumors of these. Um, obviously, there were lots of brothels around, not only in Hurley, but in Eau Claire, Chippewa Falls, Anago, Peshtigo, which we've talked about, had brothels. I mean, this was all over the North Woods at the time because, again, you have so many loggers. Miners, uh, 
sportsmen up there hunting and fishing. It's all men related, right? So there were so many rumors that a lot of the women working there were trafficked from bigger cities and they were brought there against their will. It was actually known as white slavery. Newly formed newspapers popping up more and more sensationalized the concept and referred to it as white slavery, as you said. Right. I mean, you can think about that term all you want. We're not going to debate that, but that is what they called it, white slavery. And it was scandalous, and it was sensational, and it was a huge deal nationally. Well, a lot of these women might have been by choice. Like you said, they left their families and couldn't find anything else. But a lot of it was coercion, which, you know, is— basically being forced into it and we'll get further into that obviously so a lot of newspapers were running these you know these increasingly horrifying narratives of these respectable you know young girls across the country being lured to the brothels um to be stars you know they wanted they were going to be dancers whatever it would be they were going to be stars and they were brought up to the north woods and kept there so all these angry voices you know nationally were demanding that some, you know, that something, somebody do something about that. Nobody really in the North Woods was saying anything no. that that was wrong. The right? people directly involved didn't have, no, right. there's no sex trafficking going on. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. All these voices were from, you know, kind of national angles, right, demanding something be done about it. They called it the Great Wisconsin Pineries Scandal, hmm. you know, to put an end to, to white slavery in the North Woods, which, you know, is something that I, I you know, I would not have... I had never no imagined happening. I've, I've learned, I've knew a lot about the Hurley, Hurley history, but again, I didn't, I wouldn't have ever in a thousand years come up with the idea that one of the first debates against sex trafficking happened here in Wisconsin. Especially when we're, you know, we're in the 1880s here, so we're we're right past the era of the Old West. Right. right? Deadwood and, right. you know, Tombstone. And, I mean, there were brothels galore out oh. there. And I, all, all things were legal. I mean, there was no law, really. There was a sheriff, but, I mean, there was no rules against any of this stuff. So the governor of Wisconsin at the time, Governor Rusk, which is interesting. That's the namesake of where I'll be this weekend. Yeah, I was going to say. So he felt he, he had to do an investigation of what was going on there. How motivated he was to do that investigation, you know, you could guess about that, but he did. You know, he put forth an investigation and uh, he predictably didn't find a whole lot. Well, he directed local officials to review and report their situation in their communities and take action if necessary. Well, guess what each one of those public officials in their communities would say? Nope, no problems here. (sighs) So the governor's own investigation said that, yes, there are brothels here. Yes, there is sex working here. There was confirmation of the fact that they were there. But they were there on their own volition. They were not being trafficked. And it was, basically, it wasn't worse in the North Woods than it was anywhere else. And, you know, when you have to look out west is what, is what he meant when he was saying that. So, basically, he was saying it's happening here, but it's not to the point where it becomes a state issue, right? If it's, The local municipalities need to take care of it. If Hurley thinks there's an issue there, Hurley needs to take care of it. If Eau Claire thinks there's an issue there, Eau Claire needs to take care of it. It wasn't going to be a state issue. And, the, you know, the, the governor said he wasn't going to get involved in uh, with any further. So you're right, Mick. What what did the local municipalities do about it? They didn't do anything no. about it. And one example is Marinette District Attorney H.O. Fairchild firmly denied any responsibility in doing this, saying, quote, the law does not require me to make the complaint and act as the prosecuting officer at the time. 
and I most emphatically declined to become a complainant under the circumstances of my official position, unquote. Basically saying, it's not my job to say this right. is a problem, so I'm not doing it. So we've had a national outcry of white slavery going on in the Northwoods. The Northwoods itself says there's nothing going on here. Even the Chicago Herald declared that scores of Chicago girls have been ruined and made to live lives of shame. So the rest of the country is, you know, up up in arms, flooding the governor with letters of outrage, and the people directly involved are denying it like crazy. Local municipalities do nothing about it. The governor basically does nothing about it. So enter in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Don't they sound fun? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like a fun group of gals. Uh, next, a Madison detective, James Fielding, was engaged to conduct independent in- investigation in December of 1887. Again, as we said, existence of brothels were confirmed. Uh, it was also concurred with local officials that no sex trafficking was occurring. And one of the so-called pimps, quote, one of the so-called pimps told me that the girls were all streetwalkers or taken from the dens or lowest houses of ill fame in Chicago and Milwaukee, unquote. James Fielding said this. So that was the next step. And now we get on to what Scott's about to talk about. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union didn't believe the governor, didn't believe that his investigation was uh, worth the paper that it was written on. After he declared the matter closed. Right. In 1889. They decided to do their own investigation, uh, and they they did this on their own. They were not sanctioned by any kind of law enforcement platform. Uh, But they put somebody by the name of Catherine Dr. Bushnell in charge of uh, the investigation. Now, Catherine Bushnell was uh, recruited to lead the investigation. She was a medical doctor, a missionary, and a social activist from Chicago who frequently spoke out against the ill effects of a male dominated society there's lots of those people today right this is 1888 1889 yeah she was one of the first to pioneer this kind of right uproar so you know and even those people today get a lot of backlash this is like we said this is an 1890 imagine what she went through and you know the the state and even the media after the media was crying saying that this was happening well, here is this woman, Catherine Bushnell, to put forth an investigation to pretty much paint the governor as a sham. And the Milwaukee Daily Journal itself was not—the same media that was crying about this happening uh, paints her, you know, basically mocks her and says, quote, her appearance, talking about Kath, Catherine Bushnell. <laughs> That's right. Her appearance, which is not one what would call an artist's dream, unless the artist had lunched on mince pie and pickles— before going to sleep on a rail pile. She is tall, angular, and earnest, wears spectacles, and has a voice like a boy who just was bursting into manhood. I don't know how you feel about him either way, but that sounds like a Donald Trump quote. Maybe a little more elegant than what he would normally say. But. So imagine what she went through when she was trying to conduct this uh, this investigation, when the media, who was crying that, all the sex trafficking was going on, itself was mocking her right. for doing an investigation. So obviously her investigation resulted uh, much differently than the governor's. Obviously she said that there was rampant sex trafficking going on. Well, she spent four months visiting cities in Northwoods, personally interviewing almost 600 prostitutes and many local physicians, attorneys, 
ministers and public officers. She went through the gambit of people trying to find out and get to the bottom of this. So she did her homework no matter what was being thrown at her at the time. So she knew she couldn't go to the state, right? The governor already said it's not happening. She couldn't go to the feds. There was no FBI yet. You know, we're in the 1880s here. Right. There's there's no federal bureau that she can go to. So she went to the state legislature and, you know, basically wanted to them to get more laws on the books to deter this kind of thing. And, you know, to the legislature's credit, they basically told her to beat it, but they, <laughs> they, they, did, they did put her proposals into place. They put a lot more laws on the books. They, again, they told her they don't believe it's going on. Basically the same, you know, reaction as the governor had, that they don't believe it's going on. And if it is going on, it's not to the level that the state needs to get involved in. However, if it's going on, we will put these laws on the books to try to deter this kind of behavior. So it was basically a, okay, we'll do what you ask us to do. Now get out of here. And and to backtrack just a tad, her findings, there were threats of violence and legal action were used. Those who attempted to escape were turned over to authorities on prostitution charges. Go figure that. And if women tried reporting the trafficker, it was typically ineffective because Wisconsin law at the time said it was only a crime to entice a woman into a prostitution if she was of, quote, previously chased character, unquote. So that's how the laws were placed, and that's why they got away with what they got away with, and that's why she was trying to put a stop to it. So again, the, the, the legislature did adopt some of these proposals that she wanted, but predictably nothing nothing changed. Nothing. Right. There, if the laws were put on the books, but they weren't enforced. You know, this again, this is the Northwood they do. They Whatever kind, they want. They do what they want. But, you know, the, th- the cities are doing well. The businesses are doing well. The mayor's not going to upset anything. The police aren't going to upset anything. The state's, the, the, the governor's not going to upset anything. This isn't 2022. This is 1890. So nothing changed. And now we are two years later in 1890. We have the death of Lottie Morgan. Lottie Morgan was a former actress in the area. She was, you know, she worked in, in theaters, you know, these, these lumber towns, these mining towns had, you know, if you think of like Tombstone with the birdcage or Deadwood, you know, with the gem theater, they had, they needed some entertainment, right? That was respectable, I guess you could say. So they had theaters all around. So she was a very well-known actress and she would tour around to these towns and she would act in these theaters, but she, she kind of hit the skids, you know, and she was coming to the end of her career, that point of her career. And she became, uh, you know, living on, on the, the shadowy parts of society. So Lottie Morgan, who, you know, she was known to quote, open bars and close the same ones, meaning she was at, she was at bars all day long. She was clearly a prostitute. Uh, sex working. She always had expensive things, so she was likely a kept woman. She was found murdered in the back alley behind a Hurley establishment in 1890. So just two years prior, a huge nationwide investigation was going on talking about sex trafficking in Hurley. They denied it, said nothing's going on here. The state did nothing. And now two years Grossly later... Grossly over-exaggerated is a word they used Right. Now, two years later, you have one of these sex workers brutally murdered with an axe. Brutally, yeah. Behind a, behind a bar in Hurley. 
and it became a massive national story because, you know, basically ignoring cries of uh, sinful behavior going on. This happens to one of the one of the sex workers two years later. So it becomes a big scandal. Bessemer, Michigan, April 11th, 1890. Bessemer is a, is a town right next to Ironwood, which is basically a sister city to Hurley. Lottie Morgan, who is about 27 years old and belonged to the Demimond. So the Demimond is what they called kind of the fringes of society. They're basically calling her a streetwalker, mm-hmm. um, a, a transient, you know, skid rowish. I guess we would kind of compare that to Demimond today. Demimond sounds like something from... Stranger Things, though, it sounds a lot cooler. So she was about 27 years old and belonged to the Demimond. She was found murdered behind a saloon in Hurley at 7 o'clock this morning. Her head was split open, cut off, and awfully mutilated with an axe. This is the only article that I've said that I've read that had her head cut off. I don't know if that's actually true. She was killed with an axe. She had a huge... Brutally murdered, so there's a good chance that's what happened. Now, here's the interesting thing is is that this this article, as well as several other media outlets at the time, called this... Well, you know, let me just quote what this article says. The police are working on a clue. This is a Jack the Ripper case. So people at that time, several media outlets and people around believed this was Jack the Ripper. You know, think of when we're in. We're in 1890 here. So Jack the Ripper was, you know, the Whitechapel murders happened in 1888, right? They they abruptly stopped in London. There was a train of thought at that time even that Jack the Ripper came to America mm-hmm. and was acting in America. Some people thought, as we mentioned before, it was H.H. H. Holmes working in Chicago. and His as, own relative wondered that even. And as we will talk about in as this episode goes on, there is a straight line of organized crime from Chicago to Hurley. So, you know, was Jack the Ripper working in Hurley, Wisconsin in 1890? There was a show I watched on History Channel about um, Jack the Ripper. And, I mean, they they mentioned that somebody at the time had killed all over the country, you know, usually in the bigger areas and the more um, highly populated areas. But... As is always the case, there was one spot on this map they showed of all these similar types of murders in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. So even even that speculation, I mean, this is a History Channel show that's saying there's links to all this stuff possibly because it, it was the same kind of murder and this is probably it. Now, you know, it's easy to look at that too and say this is two years after Whitechapel. Everybody knew Jack the Ripper at this time, so there were likely copycat murders. Right, of too, course. Right? Yep. So actually, I think the fifth Jack the Jack the fifth murder that is attributed to Jack the Ripper, they now believe was a, was a copycat murder. Mary Kelly, was um, Yeah. But, you know, at the time in 1890, people thought that this could have been a Jack the Ripper case, and it was published in newspapers that this is possibly the worst of Jack the Ripper, and I'm not, you know, who am I to say it's not? Oh, it's you know, speculation, it's but... It's still an unsolved murder today. It's a conversation piece. I mean, the fact that anybody's speculating, it makes it something you got to consider. I mean, it's right. crazy. So, you know, two two things you probably learned about the Northwoods already is that it was the first national campaign against sex trafficking, and it's possible that Jack the Ripper had committed crimes up right. here. Right? That's before we talk about Al Capone. <laughs> So over the next 30 years or so, national response 
has finally changed dramatically. Social issues like trafficking were finally coming under the federal scrutiny during the, what they called the Progressive Era. In 1906, Elihu Root, U.S. Secretary of State, observed in, quote, in certain important respects, the local laws of the separate states are inadequate. Such power of regulation and control is gradually passing into the hands of the national government, unquote. So they were starting to not let the state and local governments take care of this stuff because it wasn't being done. Then by the end of the progressive era, many states had enacted new and stronger penalties for sex-related crimes. And in 1910, the Federal Mann Act, M-A-N-N, which is still in use, barred interstate transportation of women for immoral purposes. So finally things started rolling as far as nationally and, and preventing these crimes from happening. So it took a long time, but it, the, the, the way that the country should roll is the way it went finally. So And, and again, that, that is the Mann Act, which is, like you said, is in effect today, was a response to what was going on in the North Woods and right. in in Eventually, you know, 30, 40 years before that. Right. So that the, the law, you know, it's crazy when you think the laws on the book, the anti-sex trafficking laws on the books today, federally, are based on what happened in the North right. Woods. That the was 1880s. the very first chapter. Right. And while it wasn't, other than that murder, it wasn't all that well heard, it's the first chapter in this in this book that finally got us here, and it happened right. here, right here in our wonderfully strange state of Wisconsin. Added to the resume. <laughs> so not a good couple years for Hurley, <laughs> right? The huge national outcry of sex trafficking going on, they ignore it, and then this massive national story of a prostitute being murdered behind one of their buildings, possibly by the most famous killer the world had ever known, right? Not a good look for, for the Northwoods at this particular time, but hey, that was okay because the Northwoods started booming at this time. As we head into the 20s and 30s, you know, you have... It becomes a destination for everybody now, right? Cars are now readily accessible. Anybody can have one. There's a lot more roads up there. The highway system is much better. Getting up there is, e- is easily accessible. You don't have to be wealthy and well-connected to go travel into the North Woods anymore, right? It's still not necessarily, you know, a family destination spot, but now it's blue-collar workers going up there with their buddies, hunting, fishing, and drinking, right? So you have a lot more lodges being built, you have a lot more resorts going up, and you have a lot more alcohol flowing. Hmm. Again, a, a male-dominated industry here. In Wisconsin, which right. likes to drink, as we might know. So, you know, as we head into the, the 20s, you know, and in 1920, probably one of the greatest mistakes this country's ever made. I think that's a, a, a pretty good bet. Um, in January of 1920, the U.S. implemented prohibition, right? Right. Banning the manufacture, sales, and distribution of alcohol. A little history behind that. It was the 18th Amendment, known as the Prohibition Amendment, was passed by Congress and sent to states for ratification in December of 1917, ratified by the states on January 16, 1919, and officially went into effect on January 17, 1920, with passage of the Volstead Act. Now, the North Woods, you know, they looked at this and they, they basically said, yeah, um, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to adhere to that. This is our livelihood, right? It's their livelihood is alcohol. You try to convince somebody to come up here with their buddies and go hunting and fishing and they're going to be having Kool-Aid and soda. You're not, you know. <laughs> Saltines. Y- your city's going Your city's going to die. Right. You know? So they weren't going to adhere to prohibition. So basically they didn't. 
and nobody enforced it. The police didn't enforce it. Local municipalities didn't enforce it. What? After what we just learned, the local <laughs> municipalities didn't enforce these laws? <laughs> right. And, you know, the feds weren't coming up there at this point yet. So it basically stayed a wet region. And, and the Northwoods, because of this, became basically the corridor from alcohol being brought in from Canada through the Northwoods. And this is where your Chicago mobsters came up there. A your supply or, chain underground of your, alcohol. Your, your organized crime underlords from Chicago who saw what was happening very quickly <laughs> and went up there very quickly. Who's going to capitalize on that faster than the mob? Exactly, and took that over. And two guys, obviously, the, the name that everybody knows, Al Capone and his brother, Ralph. Now, everybody, up in this region, everybody's got an Al Capone story, right? Al Capone has, has owned this building. Or Touched he's, our he's relatives been, even, you know? I mean, bad choice of words. We probably <laughs> have relatives who had some interaction with him is a better way to put it. So pretty much every building in this area of Wisconsin, pretty much every building anywhere in Wisconsin, has some kind of a Al Capone story, right? right? There's a Capone's and Pipe who has, a, you know, a legend of Al Capone. I know it's shipwrecked in, in Sister Bay in Door County, has all kinds of Capone legends. Maribel Caves Hotel, better known as Hotel Hell, outside of in Manitowoc County, has, you know, legends of Al Capone owning that and, and keeping the, the liquor that was smuggled in the caves, in Maribel Caves, what is now Maribel Caves Hotel. So pretty much everywhere around here, there's Al, there's Capone legend. Like right? tribute to right. him. He yeah. was a notorious criminal, but they actually tribute to him. You're right. Now, is how much of it is real, how much of it is not, we'll never know. Right. But there is a string of truth to it. There's no doubt about oh, that because sure. Capone spent a lot of time here, yeah. as did his brother Ralph, who actually lived the last couple decades of his life in Mercer, just down the street from Hurley. Actually died in Hurley. He died in the 1970s. He became um, somewhat of a respectable man. Yes, by that he, point he too. was very well known. He had, he owned a bar there for Charitable. years. Yes, yeah. very uh, became a very respectable man in the community, no doubt. He worked for his brother in the th- in the twenties and thirties, and you know he actually he became public enemy number three, I believe. Ralph Capone behind did. His own, yeah, his behind, behind Al. So Capone, Al Capone actually had he built a house um, on Cranberry Lake, I believe, and he called it the Hideout, and actually he's got a turret on top of it. Which is a watchtower, basically, and he, you know he 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 had his hand in a number of buildings being built um, that had that were built in Wisconsin and the North Woods. Lots of quote unquote gangsters spent a lot of time in the North Woods. You know, people involved in organized crime. I mean, and there's there's some names I'd like to go through just because people have known them. And these guys were the, the term is on the lamb. So a lot of these guys came up here because, like you said, Chicago's not that far away. It well-known figures like Al Capone and his brother Ralph, Babyface Nelson, John Dillinger, who we'll go into a little more, Bugs Moran, Jimmy Hoffa, Polak Joel Saltis, Frank Balistrieri, Sam Giancana, Roger Tuohy, and others. I mean, some of those last few names I'm not all that familiar with, but these are big names back then. Sam Giancana was pretty much the he pretty much took over the the Chicago syndicate from Al Capone. Right. That's was right. well known to be up in the North Woods. Another guy that spent a lot of time up in the North Woods. Uh you, you know, you you hear stories about him still today. Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And he, he, he was linked to those guys quite a bit. He wasn't on tour. Right. right? <laughs> no, he, he was He was not. up here because his buddies were up here. There's yeah. no doubt that, you know, Frank Sinatra spent a lot of time up here. So this became a hotbed for 
organized crime lords for national criminals, bank robbers, Dillinger, Babyface, like you said, Babyface Nelson. Jimmy Hoffa, uh, who they never found. They all felt, actually, a, a place up in Eagle River was actually searched for Jimmy Hoffa's body yeah. once. Yeah, right. He was known to, to hang around. Yeah, I read that while I was Eagle doing this River. research. Yeah, so, but they never found him. There was never been any evidence found to this day. You know, look, the, these people felt safe up here. Right, nobody was going to do anything to stop them. There was, you know, the police weren't doing anything. There were the feds weren't going to, you know, the as long as they could stay clear of the feds, which at this point they were in the Northwoods. Yeah, and they, they owned the local the local officials. They owned them. I mean, everybody's getting paid to shut up. Now the Capones, Al and Ralph, uh, were known to frequent Hurley a lot, and they it wasn't only that they were known to frequent Hurley; they kind of owned Hurley. They used Hurley as a training ground. And they referred to this area, sorry to interrupt, but Hurley, Hayward, and Hell, as they say, made up what locals called the Devil's Triangle. That's how this area was referred to, which pretty much red flag that there's lots of mobsters going on and lots of illegal activity. So the Capones used Hurley uh, as a training ground for what they called B-girls. B And B-girls were girls that were employed by establishments to kind of entice men to to buy drinks. They actually had a school for these B-girls to right. teach them it, how to do it. They called it B-girl U, <laughs> B-girl University. Clever, yeah. And they used Hurley for that. In the middle of Prohibition, mind you, they're teaching girls to entice guys to buy drinks in establishments while Prohibition was going on. So you can just see how her Prohibition basically was a non-issue here. Right. Like oh. it just... Like it and just it was, didn't happen. It was the perfect setup for the mob. Like this is they're gonna take advantage and they took advantage and there was right. in Hurley alone there was it was lined with brothels and nearly two hundred saloons disguised as candy stores and soda fountains, which a lot of these were the B girl U. Right. Now again, the the liquor was coming in from Canada and it got controlled by organized crime and it was then dispersed from the North Woods and sent out to wherever the crime lords said they needed to go said the liquor needed to go. So the Northwoods was the funnel system run by the Chicago syndicate. Um, but these B-girls, um, again, they, they were trained in Hurley to learn how to entice guys, entice men to buy more drinks, spend more money at the bar. Mooching and dripping, they called it. Right, and also to basically pickpocket them. Yep. They taught them how to, how to take their wallet Get out. Get them and, drunk and pickpocket them. Yep. So now again, when they were ready... These girls were then sent out to bigger markets. They were sent down to Minneapolis, Underworld dives in those big cities. And this, does this sound like trafficking to you? It was trafficking. And these girls were, you know, these girls were, they were told that they were going to get dancing jobs. Yep. Brought they, here the same way as they were in the 1880s. Right. A lot of these girls were homeless or transient. Obviously, they were easy prey for somebody like Al Capone or his minions. And uh, they were... These girls were turned into thieves and strippers and sex workers, and that became their life, and they were basically forbidden to leave. If they weren't up to the deceptions of the B-girl, the typical B-girl, they were forced into prostitution, as Scott alluded to, and girls who tried to flee altogether were beaten, knifed, or had acid thrown in their face if they were made into to be made into examples for the other girls. They actually would throw acid in their face so that other girls wouldn't want to escape afterwards. So you can see the influence of what was going on in the 1880s had were 40 years later. And Hurley is still the training ground for sex trafficking. Yeah. 
even after those laws, right, those new laws were put on the books, even after uh, the Mann Act was passed, Hurley was still that city. So obviously quite a bit of, of, uh, of big city Chicago influence going on in the Northwoods. And again, I, you know, we're talking about Hurley here. And I love Hurley. It's a great city. But it's not only Hurley. The, no. the, you know, a lot of the towns up there were going through this. Hurley um, is, was kind of the center for... It gets a lot of the credit. The but like I mentioned, Hayward. Right. And there's a lot of the other, not suburban, but sur- surrounding small towns were also involved. But Hurley gets is the namesake right. that most people use. Now, you know, again, this big city Chicago influence in the North Woods... Lots of Chicago organized crime lords up here, bootleggers, because of prohibition. Again, a massive mistake of domestic policy. So another one of these these uh, Chicago uh, infiltrators, if you want to call them that, fibs, as we like to fibs, we like to call them up here, fucking Illinois bastards. Although I wouldn't necessarily With an S. put this on this guy's name, but Emil Wanatka, who was a you know a small time uh, bootlegger. In Chicago, a small-time speakeasy operator in Chicago, um, certainly not up to the scale of some of the bigger-name guys, but he did have connections. But he he left Chicago and came up here and came up to the Northwoods and bought some land about thirty miles south of Hurley in Manitowish Waters, and he built a lodge up there, and he named it Little Bohemia. Very famous, obviously yeah. now in true crime Everyone's lore. Heard of that. You know, the, the shootout with the Dillinger gang. If you've watched the movie Public Enemies with Johnny Depp playing John Dillinger, that scene is in the movie, and that scene's actually shot at the actual Little Bohemia. A lot of the movie was shot in Oshkosh, too, right? A lot of that was shot in Oshkosh. Yeah, there was some shot in Oshkosh and Sun Prairie, I believe. I remember when that when that right. movie was being made. It wasn't I think, all that long ago. I th- yeah, I think 2010 or something. Mm-hmm. I think they were staying in Appleton while they shot in Oshkosh. So, so there was a lot of... A lot of stories of people having interactions with Johnny Depp, um, like on College Avenue, and I think he left a like a fifteen hundred dollar tip for somebody. And all good kind of stories. Before the amazing ex-wife of his started doing what she did. Yeah, yeah. what a wonderful yeah. woman. Which is interesting because you know when you think of him, this is kind of off the subject a little bit. That's fine, but he, he seems kind of like an eccentric, more kind of reclusive Keeps to guy. Himself, that, right. You know, but right. but there are all kinds of you know stories about him. In Appleton, while while that movie was being shot, yeah, I'd always heard he was a decent guy before all this Amanda Beard stuff showed right. its face. So in the, in the movie Public Enemies, which it's uh, that scene is a pretty intense scene. I think it's a really good scene in the movie. It's not accurate. There's a lot of things that are wrong in it. I think the movie um, shows him showing up at night. They didn't. They came in the middle of the day. It has him alone. They they all had their women with them. They it, the, the scene actually shows part of Dillinger's gang getting killed, Babyface Nelson getting killed. Uh, none of that happened. It was a complete embarrassment for the FBI. There was people killed there, and an FBI agent was killed there, and a complete innocent bystander was killed by the FBI. So it was a, a horrible night for the FBI. In, in kind of the lore of what happened there, the key here is Emil Wanatka, you know, who's who's kind of in the historic retelling of what happened at Little Bohemia. So John Dillinger and his gang is are they're robbing banks all over the place. And they had just committed a string of pretty successful bank robberies and now they're on the run. 
And so somehow they wind up at Little Bohemia. And kind of the historic retelling of this through the years has basically been that, uh, you know, Emil Wanatka was this kind of innocent bystander who just had these the most wanted man in America and his gang show up at his place. I hate it when that happens. We're talking John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Homer Van Meter. He had, like we said, Emil, Manet- Emil Wanatka had connections himself in that life. He used to be part of that life when he was in Chicago. And, you know, one of the connections that he had was a guy by the name of Louis Piquet, who was his lawyer. Uh, Louis Piquet also had another client by the name of one John Dillinger. So they both had the same attorney, you know. So the, the, the gang arrived there in the afternoon. There is testimony afterwards that Homer Van Meter actually called out Emil's name when they arrived. He was passing a car. Um, again, this came out in testimony while they were driving up to Little Bohemia. They passed a car that was coming out, and they stopped, and it's thought to be Homer Van Meter asked the person driving the car, is this Emil's place? So the notion that Emil Wanatka was just completely in the dark about what was going on here is... Ridiculous. Right. He he knew, he may not have known that Dillinger was coming there, but he knew from Louis Paquette that somebody was coming up there. And we, there's also evidence that when he built the lodge, when he built Little Bohemia, he had made it known to those in that life that, you know, if you need me, if you need a place to hide out, here I am. Right. So, you know, the, the innocent Emil Wanatka uh, may not be necessarily true, but why we do know that Wanatka turned him in. So we also know that he got paid $6,000 for allowing Dillinger to stay there for about three nights, $6,000 in today's money. So it's not like they came in and checked in, right? Well, that was a lot of money back then. Yes. They had a negotiated deal. So they didn't come there and check in. So why did why did they turn them in? You know, we needed to look at who we're looking at here. We're looking at people in the Chicago crime life. So is it is it too much to say that Wanatka made a deal with Dillinger, took the money for them to stay there, and then three days later, knowing that there was a bounty out for all of them, there was a $10,000 reward for Dillinger himself. Right, just as one. In 1934. Right, that's a lot. $10,000. Right. Right. Babyface Nelson was with him. Homer Van Meter was with him. These were the most dangerous guys. Biggest names in organized crime. Each one of them had a reward. So, you know, the notion that he negotiated a price with Louis Paquette to hold them up for a few days and then turned his back on them and turned, because it was the Wanaka family that called the FBI and said that they were there. So it's like he had two deals going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Not a dumb guy, but maybe got a lot of balls because there's some risk involved. And he actually started, after the, the shootout happened, he actually started a little, uh, Emil Wanaka did kind of start um, a little kind of museum thing, and he said that he had items there from the FBI agent that was killed, whose name was Carter Baum. There were two people killed. One was an FBI agent, Carter Baum, who was, who was shot by Babyface Nelson, and there was a complete innocent bystander that was shot as they were leaving by the FBI when they got there. So it was a massive embarrassment for the FBI. They thought they had the building surrounded. 
this massive shootout with Dillinger and his gang, and they all slipped out through a back window, and they took there was a logging road that the that the FBI didn't know about going along the lake, and they all slipped out and escaped, and they left their women there, obviously, but the women were all detained and and let go soon after that. Later on, it was found out that the that the items that Emil Wanatka were saying was the FBI agents, I believe his jacket and his hat and such, the FBI came later and said that that was not his and those were not his issued items. So Wanatka was um, a bit of a fraud in that respect. There is, however, still today, you can still go to Little Bohemia. It's a great place. I've been there. You can have dinner there. It looks now just like it did on that night. It has been, uh, it was remodeled at some point during the years, um, but it is now remodeled to the way it looked then, there are still bullet holes in the walls. You can see them. You can touch them. The windows are shot out. They're protected by plexiglass, right? But you can, you know, you can actually visualize the actual battle, the gun battle, while you're there. It's a really cool place. The food is great. Little Bohemia still today looks just like it did. You can't you know, stay there though. By the time I don't believe it's not an inn anymore. No, no it's longer a, offers lodging. Yeah, it's just a, it's a restaurant and and, and a, a, it's kind of like a supper club. You right. know of what we think of a of a supper club. And there was a museum there, which did um, have things left over from that night. I think that museum is no more, but I do believe the items are still there. I remember I was there last two years ago. And when you walk in the front door, they had a case right there and they had things like there was a suitcase of ties that Dillinger had left. And, um, really? you know, some that there was a bag, like a, I believe there, they had like a medical bag that they that they carried with them, and that was left there. So there were items that were left there by it's, Dillinger. It says the owners of the lodge have kept a shrine of sorts Yeah, in one of the former rooms that is filled with mobster memorabilia, including clothing, toiletries, and other items left behind by Dillinger in their hasty escape. That's so. the museum, which I, I'm, I'm not sure is still a thing anymore, but those items are still there. I think you can just look at them like, as, you, right. as you go in the... And the place, it's a great place. If you're ever in, in up there and you get a chance to go to Little Bohemia, I want to check that it, out for it, sure. Give them, yeah. I'm gonna actually going to swing by when I'm there this weekend. I'm going to be up in Ladysmith this weekend, which is about an hour west of Little Bohemia. But I'm going to I'm going to hang out there and and, uh, and check it out again, just because it's a cool it's a cool spot. But great place, great food. You can go there. You can hang out. They have Tommy guns hanging hanging up on the on the wall. It's it's just a, a an actual tangible piece of American true crime that you can actually go in yet today and, and see remnants from one of the most famous gun battles really in American true crime. I mean, it's, it's a, it's American a history place. altogether probably. Right now when, when pro, so a prohibition ends in 1933, you know, the U S the government realizes the complete idiocy yeah. of the policy of prohibition. They realize the, number of crime bosses that rise that was they realized the number of crime bosses English hard rose because of that Unrisen. the amount of people that were killed over this stuff uh, and the the amount of people that obviously benefited from it got rich off it right like the, they gave the organized crime a whole industry of course to yeah. just so, use as their nucleus obviously when that ended you know Alcohol was bad for business for the mob, right? Because it was everybody could buy, <laughs> everybody could buy it now. Everybody could sell it now. So, you know, now they had to move to kind of gambling and money laundering and 
international arms smuggling and everything they're kind of into now. Like um, Capone's business eventually died a natural death, not because of reformers or mobsters on regeneration, but after World War II, the nature of vice, as you referred to early in the episode, changed from brothels to independent call girl setups, making mob control much more difficult. So basically, these girls went into business for themselves. Right, is what or saying. they had individual pimps or whatever. Yeah. So the, the mob, in terms of, uh, you know, alcohol smuggling in the North Woods was done for in the 19, uh, after 1933 when, when prohibition was ended. But that didn't end crime in, what? in the North Woods. Didn't just stop then? No. So in the 50s and 60s, Hurley again. Hurley again was in the spotlight nationally hey. for sex trafficking. If you're, if you're going to be famous, I mean, there's no such thing as negative limelight, right? I, I mean, guess not. You know, and it, it was the focus of an FBI investigation and the center of, of a, a hearing in front of the U.S. Senate, uh, again, for what was called the White Slavery Trafficking Survey. So now we have federal investigators. Remember we said earlier that, you know, the feds were not going into Hurley and that's why trafficking was um, skating through. Now the feds are kind of realizing what's going on 80 years late. Uh, so the, so feds, the government was working slowly? Uh, that's weird. That never happens. So, you know, obviously Hurley reputa- had a reputation of this kind of thing. So the feds kind of went into Hurley and started snooping around and you have a a federal investigator while talking about Hurley says the following tucked away in the wild lumber and iron section of Northern Wisconsin, right on the Michigan state line. Hurley has the distinction of being the worst community in the state. (laughs) Gambling, prostitution, bootlegging, and dope are about the chief occupations of the place. Saloons there function with barmaids who serve the dual capacity of soda dispenser and prostitute. He says the worst. See, I'm thinking he's using bad like good, because that sounds like a lot of fun to me. It sounds like 1880s mining town Hurley. Right. In the 1960s. They just have not evolved. Like it never went away, right. So, you know, online, this is interesting. There's a 300-page declassified FBI file on Hurley. And on this investigation that they did there, you can can find it everywhere. On the city of Hurley alone. All this happened on Silver Street. Not only the city of Hurley alone, in like four bars, wow. 300 pages no of things that they were finding. And obviously they, they found a lot of bad stuff. So on six nineteen sixty two, an investigator for the Senate Investigations Committee, subcommittee, stated that Canadian girls were being recruited for nightclubs in Wisconsin and Chicago, Illinois, where, quote, immoral activities and perversion prevail. Young women were recruited through Canada through newspaper advertisements promising them stardom in the United States. After being recruited, they were sent to nightclubs in Hurley, where they were made to understand by the management that if they wanted to engage in illicit relations, such would be permitted. It was claimed then that they were shipped by management to Calumet City, Illinois, just outside Chicago, where they were employed by the Riptide Club, who in turn forced them to submit to sexual desires. Just more the exact same as we've already described. The girls at the Riptide Club were beaten regularly to keep them in line and testified that there were back rooms available where the girls took the men for, quote, immoral purposes. <laughs> the Senate Investigations Committee is of the conviction that a conspiracy existed, a conspiracy existed, 
between the Paramount Booking Agency, representatives of the American Guild of Variety Artists, and organized crime element in Chicago. This is in the 1960s, and we still have this straight line exact same thing of Chicago on. organized crime in Hurley, Wisconsin. It never went away. No. And that, I mean, there was underground tunnels connecting to each other from, ran under the Montreal River into Michigan. I mean, there was, it was set up for this to happen. And if they weren't going to bust it completely and shut this down, it continued to happen for almost 100 years. More testimony. An in, in immigration service investigator said Tuesday, this is in 1962, that an international conspiracy recruiting teenage Canadian girls for United States strip joints, where they were held in, quote, virtual slavery, forced to dance nude and take part in prostitution. We're saying the same thing over and over, and it just keeps going on. Young and inexperienced Canadian girls were recruited through newspaper advertisements, like we just said, promising them stardom in the United States. Girls were sent to clubs in Hurley and were held in, quote, literal bondage by club operators. He said there were 11 Canadian girls. This is one place he went to. There were 11 Canadian girls there, most of them between the ages of 15 and 17. There was sex trafficking in Hurley in the 1880s. There was sex trafficking in Hurley in the the 1920s 1920s and 30s. There was sex trafficking in Hurley in the 1950s and 60s. Which wasn't all that long ago. I mean, not long before we were born. And if you've been to Hurley recently, again, it's, you know, it looks a lot like this. Now, obviously we're in 2022. Is sex trafficking going on to the parameters of what we're talking about here, I don't think so. I would highly doubt it. I'm sure it it exists to some degree. But, you know, to think that organized crime in Chicago is still not delving into Hurley and the Northwoods today, um, you're putting your head in the sand. It's It's still going on. It wouldn't be going on, yeah. And today there's about 25 bars that remain in Hurley including five or six strip joints. But the strip joints are confined to Silver Street's lower block next to the Montreal River due to a city ordinance. But as Scott said, that doesn't mean there isn't things going on all throughout town. No, and I don't want to speculate that there is. Right. You know, I don't, we I, don't know how much there is, but, I mean, there's stuff like that going on in any fairly sized good city, you know. To, to suggest that it's been com- completely cleaned would be kind of ridiculous on the other hand, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's that's true. You know, we look to the North Woods today, and again, we we see it. We grow up here as going up north. You know, we go for lakes and for cabins and uh, rest and relaxation and recreation, and we family do time fun, most of the time. Right? It's not like that for everybody, you know. And through history, it's not been like that for everybody. The people of the North Woods have been through a lot. We talked about again. We'll um, we'll bring up Wisconsin Death Trip again. These people were fleeced by the American government. They were told to settle this land and it would be, you know, pristine farmland and it was junk. They left everything they had from when they came from Europe or the East Coast or neighboring states to go up there. And they were promised all kinds of goodies. Better lives and better jobs. Right. From railroad companies and lumber companies, UW-Madison, and they were fleeced. Many of them were. And, you know, here we are in 2022 and those towns still survive. They survived all that. They survived the Wisconsin death trip. <laughs> they survived towns, whole towns, seemingly actually going crazy. The Northwoods is still there today. It's thriving. It's one of the best places in the world to go on vacation. It survived organized crime and sex trafficking. 
in many cases they don't hide from that their history because it's that's interesting information to people and and that's what draws people back just to learn about it so they've got even more reason for people to come visit but there's a reason that the north woods has a mystique to it there's a reason it has a mystique to us you know those of us who who were born here and live here and those of us who were not and who look at it from a, a national perspective of like i said badassery before there is a lot of crime that went on here there's a lot of you know like we said sin that went on here not necessarily brought forth by the people from here it's been infiltrated by bigger cities it's been infiltrated by organized crime and it still survives mm-hmm. hurley is still there it's a great town eau claire is still there it's a great town chippewa falls great town rhinelander great town Eagle Sam River. Giacana himself spent a lot of time in Rhinelander. Who knows this stuff, right? Uh-huh. It survived all of that, and it's still thriving today. With this tremendous history that these places have had up in the Northwoods, good and bad, I mean... But again, it's because, it's, it's, it's part of their heritage, right. right? It's part of their history. But some and, of it was just like, you know, the Great Depression and, and, you know, just... Wisconsin death trip and just things going down south. Some of it was organized crime, but they've, like you said, they, they've encompassed, they've they've delved into it and they own their history, and that's what makes it exciting and interesting to go there now, besides the things that naturally made you want to go there in the first place. You can see the places where these things happen. You can go to Little Bohemia today. You can go to Silver Street today, which looks exactly like it did then. You, you can go to the mining camps today, which, you know, this is part of their heritage. It's part of our heritage. It's where we're from. So badassery, yeah, I think that, that the Northwoods is known for badassery. Backwoodsy, yeah, I think they are kind of known for backwoodsy. But you know what? That's who they are. Right. And that's who they've been, and good for them. There's a lot of beauty to go along with it. Amen, brother. <laughs>